Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Drummond and we're talking all about women's health issues, pelvic health and hormones as well. For those who don't know, Dr. Jessica Drummond is the founder and CEO of the Integrated Women's Health Institute and she's passionate about caring for and empowering women who struggle with women's and pelvic health conditions. She's equally passionate about educating and supporting clinicians in confidently and safely using integrative tools to transform women's and pelvic health care. Having two decades of experience in women's and pelvic health as a physical therapist and functional nutritionist, plus owning a women's private health clinical nutrition and coaching practice. This gives her a unique perspective on the integrative conservative options for pelvic pain management, hormonal balance, preconception and fertility support, along with postpartum recovery, chronic pain and fatigue management in active and athletic women. In this episode, we're discussing a lot of these chronic pelvic pain conditions like endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, recurring urinary tract infections, vulvodynia, ovarian cysts, and the influence gut health can play on some of these conditions, as well as nutrition, lifestyle factors, how to care for our pelvic floor, whether we are pregnant, postpartum, or wanting to conceive in the future. Even if we don't, it's very important. And we also touch on a little bit about the role of trauma and sexual abuse and how this can play a role in some of these conditions in the long run as well. So this is another episode that's jam-packed with information and one that you're probably gonna refer back to. And if there's anyone that you know who's struggling with one of these conditions, definitely refer them to this episode as I'm sure that they're gonna find it very helpful. And Jessica is a great resource, whether you're a practitioner listening or someone who's just interested in women's health overall. So let's get into the interview. So could you start off by telling us a bit about you and how you got into the world of women's health? Yes. So I started my career as a physical therapist and I was an athlete as a kid and I was good at science. So I thought I would go into sports medicine. And I did that for the first few years of my practice. And in physical therapy, women's health is essentially like a specialty area of orthopedics. So it's it's back pain issues, orthopedic issues for women with women's health conditions. So women who are pregnant, women who are postpartum, women who have just had breast cancer surgery and and so they have shoulder issues. So that's how my, my practice began to specialize in the field of women's health. But Pretty quickly, you know, I started to get more focused in, in doing entirely women's health the first, about the first three to five years of my practice. 
and, you know, kind of transitioned to doing a lot of that, but also more urinary incontinence, pelvic pain, things that were a little more specific to women's health, lymphedema around breast cancer. And in 2003, my oldest daughter was born. And at that point during my postpartum transition, I got sick. I essentially suffered with my own hormonal imbalance, which of course in the entirely Western trained training and, and experience I had up until that point, there weren't very many answers for that. It was you know, antidepressants, take a nap. This is normal for pregnancy, postpartum, you're supposed to feel horrible for years. And so, um, and so I learned through seeing a colleague of mine that we used to send all the, you know, quote unquote, difficult or uh, patients that were not progressing as we expected to her. She was a very early functional medicine doctor. She was trained in China and Canada and she, um, I believe she still practices, but she, you know, started practicing in, from that functional standpoint, like in, in the eighties and she, her son is an acupuncturist. And I sort of lived at their office for several months while I began to understand nutrition and managing my stress differently, kind of completely shifting my relationship with work and exercise and being type A. <laughs> and, uh, and as I did all of that, I was able to restore my hormonal health. And I recognized that, that those lifestyle medicine and nutrition pieces would be really valuable for my most my patients with the most challenging kinds of pelvic pain in particular, but anything else that would, you know, we were sort of hitting a plateau from a physical therapy standpoint. So that's when I began to integrate all of it. And really my practice has been in physical therapy, nutrition, and health coaching since, you know, at least for the last decade. Interesting. And you can mm -hmm. tell you're so passionate about it now because of your own journey and obviously helping women now. Do you see, how frequently do you see some of these chronic pelvic pain conditions? Is there like a statistic off the top of your head? Obviously the people who you attract tend to have these things, but just in the average population, do you have like an estimate of how prevalent this is? Yeah, well, I know off the top of my head that endometriosis is one in 10 women worldwide because there is a genetic component have endometriosis. And that is one of the most common pelvic pain conditions. But there are many others, interstitial cystitis, painful bladder syndrome, vulvodynia, pelvic floor dysfunction, other forms of sexual pain, PCOS, which is sometimes painful or ovarian cysts. Um, and so, you know, clearly it's a lot more, I would say at least half women, half of all women struggle with some kind of pelvic and sexual pain. And I think the statistic is about 80% of women postpartum, even a year postpartum are still struggling with some kind of pelvic pain. So, you know, and, and again, in, in Western medicine, it's kind of brushed off as normal in the sense that most of the time or much of the time, some of these things can resolve, you know, if it was triggered by something like postpartum or an injury of, of sorts. But what most women really do need is some good education, good intervention, good anti-inflammatory strategies. And a lot of these aren't 
difficult, but they're also not sexy and they're not very profitable. So, um, you know, it takes these steady lifestyle shifts. It takes consistent following up with your pelvic health physical therapist. It takes consistent nutrition shifts. So, um, it's not an easy like Viagra solution. So it's not well marketed. And just how, how important are genetics in this? Is it if your parents, if your grandmother, if your aunties all have endometriosis, for example, are you destined to have this or can we somehow manipulate our lifestyle so that we can avoid this? So the genetic component can't necessarily be avoided. Um, if you have endometriosis, you have endometriosis. It's a disease process. And they actually have done studies on female fetuses that perished for some reason and found roughly the same statistics. I think it was either eight or nine percent have the disease state at birth. But what happens is, so endometriosis are, is essentially a disease of lesions of cells that are similar to, but not exactly the same as, the lining of the uterus. And these cells are growing outside of the uterus, um, could be on anything as you know, kind of surprising as the lung or inside the nose, those are more rare, but very commonly, you know, outside of the ovaries, fallopian tubes, around the, uh, the inside of the, or kind of outside of the digestive tract, the colon, and other soft tissues on the bladder, it can be so these lesions are kind of like cancer in the sense that they're gross, but they are benign. Now, women with endometriosis are at higher risk for having certain kinds of cancers later, um, so it's important to be monitored. But it, what's interesting about endometriosis, which is in some ways similar to cancer, is that while you may have even pretty significant disease on observation, like when a physician goes in and does a surgery and looks around and can see very complex case of endometriosis, in not all cases is it symptomatic or at least not kind of very symptomatic. So, you know, some women though with less pervasive disease on observation do have very extreme real pain, you know, infertility, pain, bladder syndromes, um, bladder symptoms, fatigue, anxiety. So what's interesting and challenging about endometriosis is the kind of degree of extensiveness of the disease does not directly impact the symptom picture. And so the good news about that is that someone can have endometriosis and can do a lot of lifestyle things and physical therapy and mindfulness and psychosocial support and have significant symptom reduction. However, what I would say about that is for my younger patients, so you know, a lot of women find out they have endometriosis roughly in their 20s. Now it will present you know, as early as six, seven, eight years old and kind of early puberty. But a lot of times it looks like sort of like stomach aches or inconsistent digestive symptoms. And it's too vague to get a good diagnosis in most cases. But if you kind of look at that over time, then women will tend to have very painful periods or pelvic pain in between their periods, periods that keep them home from school, pelvic pain that keeps them home from school. So it's, it's certainly, um, 
presents with the estrogen and progesterone sort of nourishment of those lesions. So at puberty is when it really presents, but it's often not diagnosed for, for an average of seven to eight years. It's difficult diagnosis. Now, the good news is it used to be 15 years when I started this work, so we're getting better, mm -hmm. but that's not good enough if you're struggling with really intense pain for seven or eight years at least. So we're hopefully continuing to improve there. But endometriosis is a surgical diagnosis. It's the only way to truly diagnose it. And ideally by a person who does essentially nothing but endometriosis excision surgery, someone who is an expert in a very specific kind of surgery for endometriosis, they're going to be the best diagnosticians of it as well. Now, I do recommend that even in my young women patients, even if we can get their symptoms very well controlled with nutrition and lifestyle medicine and pelvic physical therapy, that they do have excision surgery or consult with an excision surgeon because that can be fertility sparing if that's important to them. So I think it's really important to get a, a true diagnosis if you want to really optimize your long-term fertility outcomes. Um, you know, and, and the other challenging thing is that often endometriosis, bladder pain syndromes, and vulvodynia, painful sex, pelvic floor dysfunction, these things often prevent, present together. So we have to unwind that the pain is not always driven by the endometriosis lesion. It could be driven by the pelvic floor tightness. It could be driven by inflammation. It could be driven by, you know, lack of estrogen, good estrogen metabolism in the liver. So there is a lot that we can do to really reduce symptoms and optimize lifestyle, whether or not a woman decides to have the surgery. Mm -hmm. And we've had um, Kate Poe on the podcast as well. It was episode 11, I think, on the subject of endometriosis. So if anyone wants all of the root causes and drivers in more detail, then definitely go and listen to that podcast as well. On the subject of endometriosis, people and women are usually told that once they have children, symptoms can improve or that will cure your endometriosis. How does that happen if that does happen at all? It's a myth. It's not true. Okay. And what is the thinking behind that? Well, I honestly don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. It doesn't change the lesions, you know, the physical lesions. You do have some hormone shifts, which maybe temporarily, you know, if you're more, if you have higher dosage of progesterone versus estrogen, potentially you're you know, feeding some of the lesions less. But there was a study that came out in early 2018 that actually showed us, we, we thought that estrogen, I mean, that endometriosis was essentially a disease uh, exacerbated by or proliferated by estrogen dominance. So too much estrogen and or too much estrogen relative to progesterone. Being that estrogen was feeding the lesion, sort of like how we see in, in breast cancer in some cases. But that study showed us that when you do histology on the lesions themselves, even within the same woman, some lesions can be more estrogen responsive, others can be more progesterone responsive, some both, some neither. So there isn't a really clear plan about how to sort of modulate hormones in endometriosis that we used to think. Um, so even that it would be inconsistent depending on what kind of hormone impacts 
that specific woman's lesions are, you know, sub, um, are going to respond to. And, you know, I think that's why, and many women don't respond to hormonal birth control as a good treatment for, or at least masking of endometriosis. Sometimes it doesn't really even help. Um, and I think that's why, because we don't really know in each individual woman, unless we do lesion surgery and histology, and at this point the lesions are out, uh, how those individual specific lesions are going to respond to yeah. hormones. So instead, we want to be really thinking more about modulating the digestive system and the immune response. So lowering inflammation, optimizing, you know, minimizing autoimmune type picture, optimizing digestion and not being so focused on hormones. And, you know, in terms of just endometriosis going away, if you have a baby, that's just, it's just not true. It's not really mm -hmm. a treatment. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the, the description of endometriosis is more of an immune inflammatory condition, also immune potentially in nature, nature as well, rather than just a hormone condition. So I love that you made that point as well it's driven potentially by estrogen and poor hormone detoxification but that shouldn't be the main focus so yeah, yeah and i mean that's an important focus we do want to make sure that people are optimizing their you know all of the hormone metabolism detox through the liver because that does make a difference if we're recirculating estrogen too much but you know, it, it may or may not be as important as we first thought. And of course, if you have an inflammatory environment, that's going to be more likely. So focusing on the real root of reducing inflammation. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, like, and in, we're seeing in Alzheimer's and cancer that people have the, the lesion, let's say the tangles and plaques or the cancerous cells, but not everyone develops cancer, cancer or Alzheimer's. And the difference is some are walking around with bodies that are environments of inflammation and others are not. And so I think we're going to be seeing more and more that there's a similar situation going on in endometriosis and also vulvodynia, by the way, and vulvodynia we've seen in our research is, has some autoimmune components optimizing the inflammation and optimizing the functioning of the immune system such that we're not overexpressing autoantibodies um, really can reduce the whole disease picture. Um, and, you know, I think that's actually very encouraging because there are a lot of tools we can use to help those systems. So let's talk more about vulvodynia for those who have never heard of it. What symptoms are we looking out for and what's the kind of pathophysiology behind that condition? Well, vulvodynia is just, it simply means vulvar pain. So your vulva is your external genitalia, the lips of the external genitals in a woman. And if that's inflamed, the lips or the vaginal, vulva vaginal opening, um, you'll, it feels very red, burny. You'll often have painful sex on penetration. And so what is causing that? Again, I think, you know, if you look at, at a lot of different people's opinions, there will be a lot of different opinions. I think that's two major things. One, in many cases, it's pelvic floor dysfunction. So the pelvic floor muscles are too tight and, and also weak because they're, you know, if you walk around with your hand in a fist for years, 
you're both going to lack circulation and ner nervous system flow and lymph flow, but you're also going to be weak in the other ranges. So it's a musculoskeletal condition, nervous system circulation. But also there's an autoimmune component. So if we can optimize the, the lining of the small intestine, so how your body kind of protects itself, that, that lining, right? We have a skin lining. And then as we eat food, it always has some bacteria on it. Then we've got these systems to get rid of that. You've got good stomach acid. You've got a, you've got a boundary essentially in the small intestine that should allow you, it's semi-permeable so you can take in nutrients, but ideally you're not taking in bacteria and viruses and other microbes. So when that lining is less, um, is not functioning as well, there it's, quote unquote, leaky, we call that leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability, then things that can fire up the immune system because about 80% of our immune system is wrapped in and around our digestive system. So one case study we published as an example was a patient who had vulvodynia for years. She had done pelvic floor therapy, you know, she had done a lot of mindset work, but when she got pregnant, her pain at about 15 weeks went away. So we capitalized on this. So during pregnancy, there's a more anti-inflammatory or sort of a less immune active immune system shift. The goal is that the body doesn't reject the fetus, right? Because the fetus is half not you. So your immune system sort of quiets down. So most, a certain percentage of autoimmune diseases kind of quiet down their symptoms during pregnancy. There are some autoimmune dis diseases that are kind of that are that the opposite happens because the immune system is complicated unfortunately and it's not black and white but generally speaking autoimmune diseases quiet down during pregnancy because the immune system quiets down so as not to reject the fetus now this is potentially problematic if you have cancer or a serious virus because your immune system isn't as fired up to treat you know fight those things but for autoimmune disease it's a good thing so in this client's case, her symptoms quieted, and I said, all right, now let's optimize your digestive and immune function during your pregnancy to see if we can keep those symptoms at bay, because usually what happens is within a few weeks to a few months, the symptoms just come flaring back postpartum. So we were able to do that with a really clean elimination diet, probiotics, healing the gut microbiome. Um, you know, healing the lining of the small intestine, quieting the immune system with more anti-inflammatory nutrition and supplementation and lifestyle, you know, things like mindfulness and not exercising like a crazy person, but not only sitting on the couch either, right? Kind of finding that right balance. All of these really important things. And for really more than a year, I think we followed her for more than 20 months, her pain never came back. So. And, and I've published one other case that was similar in a person with vulvodynia who was not pregnant, who we used that very same strategy on to eliminate her pain over time. So it's really valuable in, in the case of vulvodynia to think of it as more of an immune-driven situation in combination with that musculoskeletal tension. Because if we can also get that to release, then of course the biochemistry that we're optimizing is going to better nourish the tissues. Mm -hmm. And I do want to ask you a bit more about the 
physical therapy side of things and the pelvic floor i want to cover that definitely that was a great case study it's some people the mind is blown when you tell them that the vaginal conditions that they're experiencing the pain is due to something in their intestines they're like how is that connected at all (laughs) i know it seems really surprising But, you know, SIBO, for example, that's small intestine bacterial overgrowth. That's a bacterial imbalance in the small intestine that can be measured. When someone has both SIBO and pelvic pain, um, especially bladder pain, I believe the study was done in bladder pain, just treating the SIBO, doing nothing to the bladder, got rid of the bladder pain in like 47% of the cases. So getting that bacterial environment and microbe environment optimized in the gut has a huge impact on the vulvovaginal and urogenital systems because there are also a lot of dysbiotic conditions there, you know, yeast overgrowth and bacterial vaginosis and UTIs. And so getting the gut optimized, the gut system optimized is really a part of optimizing that whole system because it's such a bigger microbiome yeah and the gut is really the epicenter of our body and our health so if something's out of whack in that area there's going to be chronic inflammation that can spread systemically um, but definitely to areas like the urinal gen, gen you you know you can urogenital say genital system yeah. Urogenital. Yeah. <laughs> i'm not used to that one so yeah the, that's probably not your whole life's purpose no, right yeah, exactly. you're not constantly looking <laughs> no, at it yeah absolutely <laughs> And what about the role of oxalates? So um, I've had clients previously who that was that seemed to be the missing puzzle piece. They come to me, they're like, oh, it's oxalates. I've reduced to a low oxalate diet and that's the answer. But could you explain about how they play a role in vulvodynia specifically and why maybe a low oxalate diet long-term isn't really addressing the problem? Yeah. So that's a great question. I I do see that in bladder conditions or vulvodynia, some pelvic pain. So the good news is we can test to see if someone is sensitive to oxalates. You can do a organic acids test, urinary organic acids test, which will show if someone has an oxalate sensitivity. You can also do it by elimination diet, as you said, like just have someone go on a low oxalate diet for a little while and see if their pain goes away that's fine. Uh, you know, usually you'll know within three to four weeks, it takes about that long to quiet the immune response. Now here's what I don't like about being on a low oxalate diet or low phytate diet or low lectin diet, like forever. So all of those things are essentially part of the plant's defense system. And as humans, we're supposed to be able to eat plants properly prepared, you know, sometimes we should soak them and dry them in the sun and things like that before we eat them. But in general, we should have the stomach acid and digestive enzymes and teeth and mechanical digestion to overcome those plant issues, those plant defense issues. And a lot of plants that are high in oxalates are very nourishing for us, like leafy greens, for example. Um, So I don't like to take them off the table long-term unless we just can't get that sorted. So instead, what I like to do is rest the system and then make sure we're optimizing the digestive function. So they've done studies on how many times you should chew a bite of food to get the optimal nourishment from it and best mechanical digestion. And that number is 40, which 
Nobody does because we're just too busy, right? Can you imagine sitting down and like <laughs> chewing each bite of food 40 times? So we at least though, like if we test ourselves and my clients do this all the time, you know, a lot of times they're like chewing three times. Let's increase it to maybe 10 or 15 because at the end of the day, your stomach doesn't have teeth. So we have to provide mechanical digestion from the, from the mouth or at least blend everything or put it in soups or things like that. So true mechanical digestion is key. Also, as we slow down and eat, we have different, a different hormonal response to the nourishing experience, which helps us to better digest. So, you know, again, not eating in the car, not eating while you're like yelling at your kids, like trying to be in the moment, mindfully eating. And my friend Susan Albers has tons of great resources on how to eat mindfully. That helps with digestive function. And then there are two supplements that I use all the time that I think of as digestive system crutches, um, which is betaine HCL, it's supportive stomach acid, and digestive enzymes. So many people lack both of those. Now, if someone has been on a, a proton pump inhibitor or some kind of stomach acid reducing medication for a long time, we've got to get them off. And sometimes there's a period of relapse before we can kind of get the stomach acid, acid back up. These medications were only tested to be used short term for about 16 weeks, like in case someone really has an ulcer or something like that, and you need to really quiet down the stomach acid. But they're used a lot for anything. It's like, you know, you see commercials all the time on TV for like a guy eating like a meatball sub, and then he's just like, yeah, I know I'm going to get heartburn, so I'm just going to pop this Zantac or whatever. And they're starting to actually take them off the market because they're causing cancer. And that makes perfect sense because if you can't get rid of the bacteria in your that's on every bite of food that we eat, we don't live in a sterile environment, then you're more at risk for serious diseases. So bottom line, we have to support the digestive function so that the body can break down oxalates that we don't need to avoid them. And sometimes even doing that support of the digestive system isn't enough. So then we look deeper at, you know, do they have like a chronic um, virus or mold exposure or something that really needs to be unwound? And it's the same with conditions like interstitial cystitis. There's mm -hmm. interstitial cystitis diets online. And if you look at those, they're like low histamine, low salicylates, low oxalates, low FODMAP, pretty much everything. And people then turning to very restrictive diets and then find it difficult to heal, get enough nutrients in, and then it's a vicious cycle. So with yeah. interstitial cystitis, what's going on in that condition? Is it pretty similar to the vulvodynia, just immune dysregulation, poor gut health? Could you give us any, any tips or mechanisms behind that as well? Yeah, I, I believe the exact same thing that I, I disagree completely with any condition specific diet other than maybe diabetes, like pretty much if you have diabetes, don't eat sugar. But other than that, like, <laughs> um, there's no such thing as an IC diet. There's no such thing as an endo diet. We actually have an endometriosis nutrition book coming out next year, but we're not even like, it's not about a diet. It's about a process to figure out what your system is sensitive to sometimes take it away for a little while to relax the system. But my goal is to not be having my clients on super restrictive diets all the time. 
because then you don't get enough nutrients to heal. I completely agree with what you're saying that we really need to, in, in the same thing, in vulvodynia, in endometriosis, in interstitial cystitis, it goes back to the same principles. Test and see what's irritating the system. So if someone has you know, got candida or they're sensitive to um, oxalates or they have SIBO, you know, we do want to treat that. Or if they have dysbiosis, we can use antimicrobial herbs. We can rest the system of oxalates for a while. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is shift the lifestyle so that someone's not eating so rushed, so that someone's not so stressed, so that someone's not so fearful of everything that they're eating. We really clean up the diet because, you know, people eat food that's not food, right? You know, humans aren't supposed to fly, but I went to Los Angeles last week some people there were eating, you know, Cheez-Its and, and Snickers and Skittles. Like that's not actually food. So removing that from the diet, I think is a reasonable thing to do. But we don't want to be renew, removing forever, you know, spinach and garlic and onions and stuff like that, you know, beans, because these are foods that feed the, the healthy microbes in our colon that we really need to thrive. And we don't want to be limiting fat because that we need to build our hormones. Um, you know, we want to be improving, increasing the amounts of fiber people are eating in general. And we can't do that when we get really restrictive. So a lot of times what happens when people are really restrictive is there's a lot of fear around eating too, which worsens the symptoms because that's a negative message to our brain, which is ultimately the decider of pain signaling. Um, but you also get kind of painted into a corner because you lack nutrients and you don't know what to eat. It feels like everything is flaring you up. So taking a systematic approach where we do really clean and maybe even eliminate a number of things, but for no more than four weeks then we begin to add back. And in that four-week time period, we're also focusing on what to eat. You know, my, I want my clients to be eating at least eight servings of vegetables. Now, they might be cooked and gently, you know, in soups and blended and make it really easy on the digestion. But we need protein to build neurotransmitters. We need vitamins and minerals as cofactors for every enzymatic response. We need you know, fats to build hormones. So we don't want to be restricting forever. We just want to be taking out those things that are not food. And for a while, you know, that might also include things like alcohol and caffeine and chocolate and, you know, things that in some cases can be added back in, but we have to be mindful of. Food fear is definitely a real thing. I, my clients, even with conditions like acne, or PCOS, they are just so afraid because online they're reading up like all of these food lists and blog posts that tell them never eat this, else you'll never heal your condition. And that's not true at all. There's so much more to the picture than diet. It really is just one of the puzzle pieces. But that stress when you go into the meal or feeling tense and you think that you're going to react, it probably will make you get some symptoms, just the sheer thought of it. So how, yeah. how much of an issue do you feel like stress is playing a role in all of these chronic pelvic pain conditions? And again, what are the mechanisms behind it? Is it just because um, of the digestive aspects or is there other things that chronic stress causes? Oh, any stressor can certainly make this more problematic for pelvic pain. So let me give you an example. I had a patient who was on 
a lot of supplements, but very appropriate. She'd seen another number of functional medicine practitioners and they were all appropriate supplements, but there were like 25 of them. It was overwhelming. And she was still in a lot of pain. So, and she was not sleeping well because she was in so much pain. She was distracted. So she was staying up and she was on blue screens a lot, which was messing with her circadian rhythm. So if we unwind all of these things and she was living in an environment in her home that just wasn't, you know, her family wasn't really supportive. They were saying, oh, you're faking it. Da, 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 da. You're fine. So instead, she started to slowly add boundaries to her life, you know, having her, her children who were teenagers do more specific chores, um, not allowing people to talk with her, you know, talk with her about her in that way, not accepting that, putting boundaries around her sleep hygiene and her daylight exposure and just little bits of kind of getting walks outside, going to bed at a certain time, being off the devices boundaries around how she was willing to talk to herself. And really at the end of the day, that's what it was like her pelvic pain was her light, like her little red warning light that she was not holding boundaries and not taking care of herself. And over time, and it, you know, this takes a while because this is conditioning that we all have to deal with and unwind, you know, kind of feeling like we should be whatever other people think we should be or feeling guilty about holding boundaries that can take a while to unwind but doing that was very directly having an impact on her sister and her symptoms when she was able to do it her symptoms were gone and i mean quickly like within you know as soon as she would do that it took a while to change the conditioning but once she would do it her symptoms were gone, but then they would come back when it was kind of like, oh, you know, she was having trouble holding those boundaries. So that's a learning process that I think is really helpful because really the mechanism is stress. It's brain inflammation, it's pelvic floor tension, it's changes in neurotransmitters in the brain, changes in neurotransmitter levels. So this does have a very specific physiologic impact. It doesn't mean the pain's all in your head, that, you know, it's just about some psychologic impact. No, it's it, the, these stressors, whether they're how people are treating you or how you're allowing them to treat you, the overexposure to kind of staying up too late and watching screens all the time versus, you know, spending a little time each day in nature, having a mindfulness practice. All of my patients, I recommend a mindfulness and meditation practice. Um, and not just doing it when you're in pain, but all the time, sort of building that consistent muscle changes the thickness of the gray matter, changes the size of the hippocampus, all of which directly influences hormone levels, neurotransmitter levels, and levels of inflammation and good sleep. You know, a lot of patients with pelvic pain really struggle with sleep, especially if they have bladder components because the just having to urinate frequently can wake you up. So it takes a, it takes, it's a little more effort to do some of those other things that we think of as kind of like, oh, low stress and soft skills and nature. But really, these are very powerful medicine. There was a study that was done on people with neck pain, and they had them go to skilled physical therapy or walk in the woods. They called it forest bathing. It's kind of a Japanese term for taking a walk in the forest. 
And the forest bathing was equally as effective on their pain relief as the physical therapy. And, you know, I find physical therapy extremely valuable. I've been a physical therapist myself for 20 years. But I think we really underestimate the things that medicine thinks of as fluffy. It's so true. People just want to know the food that they need to remove, the supplement they need to take, the next best thing that they that they should implement into their routine. But it usually is just the stress management, getting to bed on time, getting outside, like not staying under artificial lighting all the time. Like we're just mm-hmm. not connected to nature like we used to be. And that is a huge stress on the body. Stress yeah. isn't just mental and emotional, but that is a huge aspect. And with some of those chronic low-grade stressors, maybe even subconscious, mm-hmm. how frequent do you see things like trauma and maybe sexual abuse playing a role in some of these conditions? Yeah, that's a huge contributor, especially in pelvic pain. So interestingly, when you look at most of the studies on stress, stress causes cortisol levels in general to increase. So that's a stress buffering hormone. It will increase. But in trauma and in in pelvic pain in women, not in pelvic pain in men, but in women, um, it actually causes cortisol to decrease. So trauma, especially if it happens in childhood, around puberty or during or around the the perinatal year, is actually resets the nervous system in kind of a less optimal way. uh, Trauma at any point makes the nervous system less resilient over time. So Absolutely, as part of what part of the recovery would be to working with a trauma informed therapist, a psychotherapist, a coach who is really well versed in trauma, because a lot of women who do have pelvic pain do have a history of trauma. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, when the Me Too movement started coming out in the United States, and, and I think that it expanded globally, you know, we started to realize that so many women have been um, subjected to trauma at some point. So, you know, this changes the nervous system for the long term and it's extremely common. So I think we have to be aware, almost assume that that's part of almost every woman's story, whether or not they have pelvic pain and really uh, kind of create extra resilience in the nervous system over time. And how we do that is all of those really intensive self-care behaviors, but also, you know, trauma-informed therapy is a key piece of rebuilding that nervous system resilience and thus hormonal health resilience. I agree. And again, this is another thing that people either don't bring up in consultations or don't think it is important, so they just don't mention it. And they try their best with the diet. They're taking all of these supplements. They're doing all of these tests and usually it's the last thing that's left uncovered. And that's usually Mm -hmm. the point that gives the most results. And I always say you could be eating the most perfect diet in the world, but if you have limiting beliefs and traumas and like subconscious stress inside, you're probably never going to fully overcome the conditions that you're having. And it's sad to think that we have to assume that everyone's gone through this, but it is just the real world. And that's what happens these days. Yeah. And I think, you know, when it comes to kind of general stressors, right, everyone is sort of carrying some kind of boulder of stress, you know, it might be really big, it might be small, it might be in a backpack, you know, we might have support and help with it, but everybody's got like the core stressor that they're sort of dealing with that drives a lot of what they do day in and day out. 
in my experience, usually it's either relational or something that's very recent and acute, something more like a grief situation, or it has to do with some primary relationship, a spouse, a child, a parent, or financial or work kinds of responsibilities. And so even if you can just acknowledge that that's a stressor that you're dealing with and that you work with your coach or your healthcare practitioner to kind of come up with a plan, you know, a lot of these things can't be changed immediately. Most people can't just quit their job tomorrow or change their boss or, you know, may wave a magic wand and have their, their kids or their spouse treat them better, right? But you can, over time, learn some tools, shift your job, start a job search, find out what you want in the new job, change how you respond, you know, change our own boundaries and our own relationship skills so that people respond to us differently. Um, and if we have a plan about that and we, have, we start building support around that and strategies around that, I really often find that my clients feel just a lot of benefit quickly because even though the current situation hasn't changed immediately, they know they're not trapped in that forever. And that can be really healing and kind of just relax the nervous system like, okay, you know, this job isn't the perfect job. I need this money right now, but I, within the next year, year and a half, this is going to be changed is like, you can breathe a lot easier than if like, oh my gosh, I'm trapped here for the next ever for the rest of my life. Right. Mm -hmm. perception is really important like there could be the same stressful events or the same event that two people experience and one of them could see absolutely no problem at all the other one it could be like the worst nightmare so the way that you respond and talk to yourself about the stress in your head it really does make a difference so sometimes you can't like you say immediately quit your job and go backpacking across the world but right. you can make plans you can put steps in place you can be grateful for the job that you do have currently it's paying the bills um you have a roof over your head and that really does calm the body and put the body at yeah. ease and that's really it important does. yeah and the last condition that i wanted to talk about was ovarian cysts mm -hmm. so people think that they have pcos if they just have an ovarian cyst but can you differentiate between the two and talk about like cysts rupturing and what could be going on there? Right. You don't always have PCOS if you have ovarian cysts. That's just one of the factors. Um, ovarian uh, PCOS also has to do with dysregulated um, testosterone. So essentially too high androgens, which is primarily a testosterone. Also blood sugar instability. So usually insulin resistance. Um, and so people can have ovarian cysts that rupture just because they are not not optimally detoxing, or if people are afraid of the word detox, metabolizing their estrogen. So the first way to make sure you're doing that is make sure you're having a daily good poop. It's so important. People are like, my liver, my liver. Yeah, great. But you can't you have to get it all the way out. Mm -hmm. So I, before I do anything with the liver, we're talking about hydration, sometimes magnesium support, chewing slowly, mindful eating, you know, pooping with a squatty potty so you're in a good position and your pelvic floor can relax. But if you have vulvodynia or vaginismus or some kind of pelvic floor dysfunction, it may be difficult for you to completely relax your pelvic floor so you can have a bowel movement. Sometimes it's mechanical. Um, and so starting with 
pooping and make sure you're eating enough fiber and everything that goes along with that. Because otherwise, if, if you're not pooping well, estrogen can be recirculated. The second step is to kind of back up and make sure the liver is functioning well. And the two things that are usually missing there is adequate B vitamins. So if you're not eating grains at all for some reason, which is sometimes beneficial depending on the situation, you need to be supplementing with active forms of folate, B12, and all, really the entire B complex, but specifically folate, B12, and B6. And um, essentially, these are byproducts of cruciferous vegetables, DIM or IC3, which is a little less, uh, it's a little higher up in the, in the pathway. So those are supplements you could use, or you can just use broccoli extract, or you can just eat plenty of broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cabbages. Most of us aren't getting enough of that. So all of that supports the liver's metabolism of estrogen, which is really key if someone's having, uh, you know, consistent, like more than one rupturing ovarian cysts. And those are painful. I've actually had two or three in my life before I knew how to do this. And, um, oof, like that, that will not turn your tail. Yeah. I've never had them personally, but I've heard like people are like in A&E, like thinking that something's exploded inside and they're like in the worst pain ever. It feels like a knife is like stabbing into them. So yeah, I'm really glad that yeah. I've not experienced them, but I really empathize with luck. the people who do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're intense. I mean, I had two babies without any pain medicine mm, and right. this was right up there. Right. So, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Scary stuff. And then on to things that people can do. So we've spoken about diet uh, multiple times in the recording. So lots of um, plant foods and fibers, potentially a short-term elimination diet to find out your individual triggers, but then working on the root causes at the same time so that you're not just restricting, restricting even further. And then things like healthy fats and proteins. Are there any specific nutrients apart from the B vitamins and the magnesium important for reducing inflammation and supporting just maybe hormone imbalances and immunity in general? Yeah, I do think most of us are lacking antioxidants. So there are lots of antioxidants, but oxidative stress to the mitochondria of all of our cells is a huge issue. So vitamin C, vitamin E, um, lots of things are antioxidants. That's where you start looking at how many colors are you getting in your vegetables? You know, Are you varying it up, getting some reds, some purples, some greens, uh, yellows? These all contain different antioxidants, sometimes supplementing with N-acetylcysteine or glutathione or even some of the adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha is a kind of a stress buffering um, herb. It's actually a plant that... um, also has an antioxidant role. It increases glutathione. Glutathione is kind of the master antioxidant. It's it's a very powerful antioxidant that's both water and fat soluble. So alpha lipoic acid is also like that. So adding antioxidants is key. Uh, vitamin D is something I think that's often overlooked. Um, and omega three fatty acids. So. I want, you know, at least a thousand milligrams, maybe 2000 milligrams a day of good quality fish oil for most people with pelvic pain, vitamin D. I'd love to see your levels at more like 50, even though 30 is normal. Let's get them a little higher, 50, 60, 70, even 80. They can go too high. So over a hundred is a little much and can be problematic, but the sweet spot is kind of upper end of normal. 
for vitamin D. Iron is also important. We have to be careful with iron. We don't want to supplement with that if someone doesn't need it because iron and copper can both be inflammatory. But iron is key because without adequate iron, if someone's anemic and, and if a woman has you know, chronic heavy periods or she's perimenopausal and having her periods really often close together or heavier, then that's the most common cause of anemia in the Western world. And if you have anemia, you actually have a lack of oxygen to your brain, which is going to increase pain signaling because it's a danger signal to the brain. So testing serum iron along with a ferritin level are some common tests you can have done at your GP and just kind of keep those things in the, in the more optimal ranges. Don't be satisfied with just normal ranges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the, the average range is an average of the people who go for lab work and it's like the general population. So they're not the healthiest of people. So I don't want my blood work representing average. I want to be optimal. So I agree with that. And the vitamin D, they were the optimal US ranges. So Mm -hmm. in the UK, anyone listening you're aiming around 100 150 that's a good sweet spot to stay in for your vitamin d but definitely get tested first you don't want to just mega dose vitamin d without knowing what you're doing and then yeah previously you've mentioned about the pelvic floor and the importance of caring for your pelvic floor we don't want it to be too tight we don't want it to be too loose and weak how do we optimize that and what are some of the things maybe apart from childbirth that can impact that So a lot of things can impact it. Childbirth is a big one, but also uh, like heavy weight training or exercise where you're like pounding, jumping, bouncing a lot, gymnastics, running, hurdles, things like that, Um, pole vaulting, uh, trampoline. So the pelvic floor is is a hammock of muscles that starts from your pubic bone and goes back to your tailbone and then kind of spreads out to support the whole bottom of your pelvis. And it's a little tricky because we don't want everyone just walking around kind of like clench, clench, clench your pelvic floor, right? We don't want anyone doing like a million kegels um, because that can trigger pelvic pain. But you do want to have good strength and mobility. So the best thing to do is have at least one session, especially if you've had a baby, but if you have any kind of urinary leaking or pelvic pain, even if it's just with your periods, then you're like, oh, this is not bad. It's, you know, it's not affecting my life too much. Even still, because we want to set ourselves up for success, kind of like we have our optimal nutrient ranges, I strongly suggest going to see a pelvic floor physical therapist, even for one or two visits, to make sure you're contracting your pelvic floor well and you're relaxing it well. Then a pelvic floor physical therapist will also do a pelvic exam, but in a different way from a gynecologist. So they'll take a gloved hand and they'll essentially feel the muscles inside your vaginal canal, or if it's a man, they can go through the rectum Uh, for a woman too, if there's a reason to do that, but it's generally more comfortable vaginally. So that's what we'll do in most cases. And, and you, you know, the, like the muscle right here in my hand should be comfortable and soft and I should be able to squeeze it without intense pain. And same thing in the muscles of the pelvic floor. It shouldn't be tender to palpation. It should be flexible. We should be able to move it. We should be able to relax it. We should be able to tighten it at will. But a lot of times we don't practice connecting our brain to the muscles of our pelvic floor. So they're either kind of, you know how some people with headaches sort of subconsciously walk around with their shoulders in their ears? Like the neck is always tense. 
same thing can happen in the pelvic floor. You can carry just kind of a low grade tension there that we have to sometimes learn to relax. Same thing as we do with the neck. And just like there can be some tender spots and some lack of mobility, lack of movement in the neck and shoulders, lack of maybe full expansion of breathing because the pelvic floor and the diaphragm kind of work together. There should be some movement as you're breathing. There should be good movement, blood flow, lymph flow, nervous system flow, and not a lot of like tender points and tension in the pelvic floor, just like, you know, your neck, your shoulders, your arms, your rib cage should be able to expand when you're breathing. When I touch your neck, it shouldn't be tender. Um, that's what we're looking for in the pelvic floor. And then we can learn to strengthen it just like you would do, you know, shoulder exercises. Then you would do sort of Kegel exercises, holding them for different lengths of time. There are little tiny weights you can use if you want to get it really strong if you're struggling with incontinence or some something like that, especially postpartum or post-surgery. And there, you know, it, it's just like any other part of the body. We need to sort of train it to keep it in the best position, just the best uh, condition, just like we would with our, you know, our rib cage and our core muscles and our hips. And the other thing is it's intricately connected with our core muscles and our hips and, and legs uh, because these muscles are all connected across joints. So you should be able to use it functionally. You shouldn't be leaking when you jump. You shouldn't be leaking when you stand up, when you lift, when you do, you know, strength training exercises, because one of the best possible things that all women can start doing is relatively heavy strength training. You know, that is so beneficial for our overall long-term health, for our bones, for our cardiovascular system, for metabolism. And if we're worried about leaking or we have pain in the pelvis, when we do that, we're not going to exercise as hard. And I think that's one of the most important reasons to just, you know, have a couple of consult visits with a, with a pelvic floor therapist. It essentially should be mandatory if you're postpartum, but if you're having any symptoms, even if you've never had a baby, it's, it's not uncommon to have issues as well. Are there any resources that people can like search or associations that you recommend maybe in the yeah. US or anything in, the, in other parts of the, the world that we can do a quick Google search and find someone who's good, who's going to help us near to where we live? Sure. Um, in the U.S., uh, the American Physical Therapy Association has uh, a directory. Of, it's called the Section on Women's Health, although they've just changed it to like the Academy of Pelvic Health. So it's a part of the American Physical Therapy Association. Um, I think in the U.K. it's called the Chartered Phys Physiotherapists in Women's Health or something like that. Um, but you can also Google, there's a great global resource called Pelvic Guru, pelvicguru.com. Uh, we used to use a hashtag on Twitter more often than we do now, but uh, hashtag Pelvic Mafia. If you just start searching like physical therapists who are talking about vaginal and pelvic health all the time, like they'll know some people. Um, but in Australia, you have to have special training in women's health to work in women's health. Um, so yes, generally speaking, the professional organizations of the physical therapy association or physiotherapy will point you in the right direction for finding someone who is specially trained in pelvic health. And just for a general global resource, I su suggest the directory at pelvicguru.com. 
Perfect. I'll include all of those links in the show notes for everyone who's listening. So you can find someone near to your area. And like you say, if you're regular at the gym, you're eating all the healthy foods, but you're missing this key aspect and it could be the missing puzzle piece. So I'm definitely going to get myself booked in. I've never seen a physical therapist um, before. So that should be fun. Even though I'm not experiencing any symptoms at the moment, just for prevention preventative as well like strengthening the muscle yeah. make sure everything's right before something happens being proactive rather than reactive i think that's the best solution as well so yeah. i want to finish up with just a few questions for you jessica before we finish up so the first one would be what's something that you're into lately this could be in the area of women's health it could be completely random <laughs> well, I would say I'm into writing a book on endometriosis. Yes. So that's a bit of a, a all-consuming thing. Mm -hmm. I'm also into, I have two kids. So one of them, they're both like volleyball. So it's not a sport I ever played, but I'm suddenly at a whole bunch of volleyball tournaments and tennis, other sport I've never played. So that's probably what I'm busiest doing right now. Cool. I'm excited for your book. We'll definitely be sharing that when it comes out. Um, did you say next year at some point? Yeah, January. Yeah. It'll be out in January. It's almost Amazing. done. I'm good. I'm, I'll be excited when it's done. Yes. <laughs> That's your, your other baby by the sounds of things. <laughs> right. I know. Books are full on. Yeah. I can imagine. And what's one herb, nutrient, or supplement that you couldn't live without? Hmm. I am not a huge supplement addict, but there are probably two. One, I always take digestive enzymes with me. And the other is that I really like turmeric. Um, there's so many benefits to turmeric. And I also just like curry. Mm -hmm. uh, so those might be my two favorite supplements personally. Good. And are there any books that you recommend apart from your own that's coming out next year on the subject of women's health or pelvic pain that you recommend that people should check out? Yes, actually, I have one right here on my desk. That's a really good one. That's just come out. Uh, another endometriosis-specific oh, book called "Beating Endo" by Amy uh, Stein and, and Iris Orbuck. There, she Iris is a surgeon and Amy is a pelvic physical therapist. So that's another great book on endometriosis. Um, I like any book written by Isa Herrera. She's another great pelvic physical therapist. She's written about four books. Um, and one other, Tammy Lynn Kent is a pelvic physical therapist who wrote a book that, that the name is escaping me right now, but it's also really valuable for sort of exploring your own pelvic floor and pelvic health from an energetic and kind of mindful standpoint. So those are some great physical therapists that have written women's health books. Yeah, definitely. I have to check those out and I'll find the name of the one that you've just mentioned and pop that in the show notes as well. So everyone could check those out too after the episode. And final question is where can people find more about you online? And for any health practitioners listening, could you tell us a bit more about your Integrative Women's Health Institute certification? Sure. So that everyone can find us online at integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com or on Instagram at Integrative Women's Health. Also Facebook at Integrative Women's Health Institute, Integrative Women's Health Institute. Instagram, it's just Integrative Women's Health, shorter for some reason. <laughs> um, and yes, yeah, so we have trained hundreds of women's health professionals around the world to be specialist health coaches in women's health. And we offer a fully online program that is internationally approved. So you feel eligible to sit for board certification, 
it's very intensive and you have a lot of support. We have one-on-one -on -one coaching for you through the program. So I'm really excited about that. If you want to learn more about that, go to integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com and scroll down just a bit and you'll find a link to see a workshop about our Women's Health Coach Certification Program. Great. Thank you so much, Jessica. This has been an amazing episode. We've covered everything that I wanted to. So thank you so much again for your time. I know that you're really busy. So thank you for sharing this valuable information with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next steps to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.